Well, good morning. Um, this summer we have been, uh, we've been in a series through the book of Psalms this summer. Well, this morning my friend Alex Watlington is going to be opening God's word for us. Alex has um, been here uh, with us a few times in the past. Alex, excited to have you here again this morning to open God's word for us. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Bryce. You have to add to, to Bryce's words there. Uh, even more so, what's great is because of our connections, we get to train together. So Bryce and I were at a pastor's conference two weeks ago in Atlanta. It's just it's just always good to, to be trained together and to eat dinner and to spend time praying for one another. So I'm thankful for that friendship and partnership. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we will look at God's Word together. Father, thank you for this uh, Sunday as we look at your Word with you. Uh, make it beneficial to us with this time. Uh, be useful to our souls, to your church, that we might see the beauty of Jesus wherever we are in life, whether it be skeptical right now, whether it be uh, yearning for you, would you use this time, Lord, to draw us to yourself. In his name we pray. Amen. So like Rice said, you've been in a series of the Psalms, and we're going to close that today. If you uh, have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 73. If you would, a stand for the reading of God's Word. The 73rd Psalm says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they, all, they increase their riches. All in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have been betrayed. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, you arouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is God's word. 
You may be seated. So have you ever had one of those experiences uh, in life or at a, at a camp or a conference or a worship service that you say think is so life transformative um, and God feels so close and so real uh, and connected to you in the moment you think I'm never, I will never doubt again. I will, I will never not believe this is true again. And then you come away from that and life shows up. You know, I think we make that statement a lot. And what is so helpful about the Psalms is that they are more real than our emotions. And in some ways, retrain our emotions to what life is actually like. Because here is a psalmist talking about his deep doubts and his deep frustrations in life. And that, that is actually really hard sometimes in life to believe. And so doubt, and the problem with doubt is that it is a, a regular part of life, but there's no good places to process this. You know, neither the religious camp nor the secular camp gives you a really fair arena to process doubt. I remember one time about five years ago, my wife and I were at a church, and we heard uh, the pastor uh, say that, he had, he had only doubted one time in his life, and that was in 1972. And it was not about Jesus. And I remember thinking, like, wow, like this is, like, I would never process doubt at all with this guy. But neither is the secular world a safe place to doubt, because it's, the doubt is so praised and uh, welcomed that it is portrayed in a way that if you don't doubt, you're not enlightened, and you're not smart. And so doubt is not something that you process and actually think about. It's something you immediately run into and jump into. And not, there's not really places to work this out. And that's why doubt is so problematic for us. There was an article uh, this past week in uh, People magazine that was talking about the heroin epidemic. And uh, there was a mother in there who was being interviewed about that she had two children that had been killed through this heroin epidemic. And she said, one of the things that's so problematic with this epidemic is that we have got to stop thinking of addiction as a character flaw in people. Because the moment it's a character flaw, if there's no arena to which people can process this in a safe place. Look, the church is, you're never going to work through doubts. Your friends are never going to work through doubts. You're not going to be able to work through doubts in your family, with your children, your spouse, or anyone connected to you until you stop thinking about this as a character flaw. And realize the Bible doesn't just teach us that there is doubt, it teaches us how to process doubt and how to work through it. And so let's work through that this morning, through this psalm, through looking at this. One, the nature of doubt. Two, the benefits of doubt. And then three, how do we sing with our doubts? Uh, I want to try to move through the first two rather quickly, but the nature of doubt, the benefits of doubt. And then let's talk about how do we actually sing through our doubts and make this a, a normal regular thing in the church that people work through. So one, uh, the nature of doubt. It's sort of helpful to actually know and process what we're actually talking about with doubt here. In verse 2, though, he says this. He gives us an illustration. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So here's an illustration um, that he's talking about to, to make doubt comes, come to light for us. He says, on this rock I was standing, and my feet had almost slipped. And this Hebrew word that he uses for slip, when it's translated in the Greek, is the word that we get to use the word dizzy. And so sort of the image that you can deduce from this is that what he's talking about is that 
doubting is sort of an idea of, it has to do with disorientation and dizziness. You know, when you're dizzy, your eye doesn't give your brain sufficient information on where to put your foot. And so you lose the certainty of where your foot should be standing on something. Should it be here or should it be there? And that's doubt. I don't know where to stand. I'm not sure if this is stable or if this is stable. Now, where does that come from? Well, look what he says in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, They had no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So here's where doubt, the idea of slipping and your foot not sure it's on the right thing, arises from. First, he saw something. Here's what Asaph saw. He he began to see and rethink that the world is not making sense to how I think it should be going. He says, I look out at the wicked. I look out at those who do not acknowledge God, those who don't follow God, and all their lives are going better than me. And he's confused on this assumption that Asaph thinks that supposedly under a good God, if I follow him and if I trust him and if I love him, my life should be going really well. Yet when I look out, it's the proud, it's the envious, it's those who take advantage of one another. Their life is going materialistically better than mine. And that's really pretty true today. If you look out across the world, the experience is usually those who live for themselves often find the most success in your culture. And what Asaph is drawing out for you and I to to realize is that we pretty much work with this paradigm in life, that if I'm faithful to God, if I'm a good person, if I love people and try to live responsibly, life should work out in my favor. And what Asaph is really, and what you may have realized from time to time, and this may have arisen doubts in your own life, is that life does not work that way. And neither does the God of the Bible work that way. And when that comes back into your face, it begins to arise doubt. Because Asaph says, I look at my life, and these things that are going wrong, how could a good God allow this? And this has been a problem then, and it's a problem now. It's been 20 years since Harold Kushner's um, epic book, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? sold over 5 million copies. And we've never gotten over that problem. We've never gotten over that question. Because we want an explanation, because the lack of explanation brings out doubt. But he didn't just see something, he experienced something. Look in verse 13. He says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying this, look, I have tried to be pure. I have sought the godly ways of life. I have sought to follow the laws. I have sought to follow the rules. And none of my life is working out. Nothing is working out to my benefit. Nothing is making sense in this world for me. And when he tried to understand it, it drove him mad. See, here's what the real nature of doubt is. You have to understand if you go through doubts or you have someone that you love that goes through doubts is that it is not just a purely intellectual exercise. And that processing faith nor processing doubt is is just a mind exercise, but it's a combination of reason, rationality, what you think, and life experience. And the way doubt comes into our lives is both socially and personally. Let me explain this. Socially, like the sociality of knowledge is something that um, sociologists say that 
you and I think sometimes how we learn and how we come to truth is we just read books or we just go to class. This is how our education system works, right? We just read a book, we just study something, and it, we should learn it, and we should know it, and it should become a part of our life. But sociologists say that's not really how we come to know things. That's not how we come to knowledge. That is one way we come, but a dominant way in which we come to knowledge is that we find people in our lives who we want to be connected to. We find a circle uh, of friends, we find some of the people in our community who we think they're popular, uh, they're connected, they're wealthy, uh, they can get me a job, they can get me in this club, they can get me in this friend group. And often what, how we process truth is we find out what they believe, what they think is true, how they view the world, and we adopt their beliefs. I see this all the time on the college campus. And so people think it's, a, it's purely an objective uh, intellectual exercise, but really what we do is often the way we think and how what we value in the world is the best way for us to move up the ladder in the social circle that we want to be in. And we listen, we do this with faith and we do this with doubt. And so you have to understand that in the nature of doubt sometimes, if you struggle with this, or your children struggle with this, or your friends struggle with this, it's not as though they just purely intellectually think, I'm not sure that Jesus could have risen from the dead, or I'm not sure that there's a God. There's something socially going on that is bothering them and protecting them and being a roadblock for them in life that's more crucial to them in order to answer this question. But sometimes it's not just socially, it comes at us personally as well. That is, our views and our convictions can be largely shaped through our stories. And what I mean is this. Sometimes, and you may have had this, something really hard can happen in your life. Like a tragedy, like a breakup, like a divorce. Uh, like somebody breaking trust on you. And those moments largely shape our convictions of what is real and true for us in this world. And that's significant because if you want to know why something is hard for you to believe now, and it wasn't hard for you to believe 15 years ago, you don't just need to look at paper about the truth of Jesus. You need to follow your story and how you looked at Jesus and how you looked at God in faith in the midst of that story. Think of it this way. If, if, if trusting God is hard for you, and that is a doubt that creeps up in your life, here's what you need to do. You don't just need to think whether or not how real is God. You need to follow your story and say, where has trust been broken in my life that this is a hard thing to even begin to trust anybody, much less a God who claims my whole life? You see, you have to know that the nature of doubt is both intellectual, rational, and it's also personal and social and our life experience together. You have to know that so it protects you from one of two mistakes. See, on the one hand, these issues sometimes will not be convenient for you to believe. And the hard part is not whether or not it's true, it's whether or not you actually want to do that. So for example, forgiveness. But the Bible calls you, no matter what, to forgive somebody. But if you have been burnt, or you ask for forgiveness one time, and the person rejected you, or you, you were supposed to forgive somebody, but they hurt you in such a way you never thought you could do that. Look, when the forgiveness of God comes to you as an open invitation, 
you've got to be able to process that that's not just hard intellectually for you. That's hard because of what somebody did to you personally. And you don't want to throw the significance of God's open freedom of forgiveness to you because of something that happened to you personally to make this not true because this was so difficult to true. But the other mistake that you don't want to be caught up in is to think all your beliefs socially are just socially constructed. Um, Peter Berger, uh, his book, uh, Rumor of Angels, talks about uh, beliefs as a social construction. And, and here's uh, why that's significant for you. Because if you have children who grew up in the church, and they think, well, the only reason I ever believed this is because uh, my parents raised me this way. You're going to get into a high school, you're going to get into a college, and people will think, well, you never would believe in this Christianity if you hadn't come from this church in Orange County, or you hadn't come from this family. And it's only because those who are around you told you that that was true. That's not actually true. Well, what Berger points out in that book is he says, well, the only problem with that is that's a social construction itself, that all beliefs are coming through social construction. And so here's the point. Um, Doubt comes through believing or or through the intellect, and it comes through your life. But you've got to know you still have to think, yet your life is going to show up. And so it's more than just this simple, I'm not sure this is real. It's more problematic than that. But it's not just problematic. It can be really beneficial. Secondly, there's doubt. See, the Bible doesn't just teach us what to believe. It teaches us how to believe. See, here we have an author of Scripture who is going through doubt and is processing doubt. And follow his story in this. At the beginning of this psalm, this psalmist says, I'm not sure God, he says, surely God is good, yet my life is falling apart. How can you be a good God and let all this happen? But look at the affirmation at the end of the psalm. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing I desire on this earth besides you. This is some of the greatest affirmations throughout the psalms about how good God is amidst all of the temptations against all the jewels of the world. And listen, the path from him getting to where he was is through doubt. It's through doubt. Now, the paradigm is not that doubt actually gives you the best faith in this world, but we can deduce from Scripture a couple things. It's that sometimes the greatest affirmations and the greatest things you can believe to be true about God come through processing doubt in your life. One of the most clear ways we see this in Scripture is through doubting Thomas. Do you remember this? At the end of the Gospels, Jesus has been risen from the dead, and he's coming around, and it's a pretty insane thing to believe. This man actually rose from the grave. He's physically here, and some people are slow to believe, and Thomas says, I will not believe until I see his hands. And then when he comes to him, it's so beautiful because Jesus doesn't say, how could you ever doubt? Nor does he say, nor does he rebuke him, nor does he question his doubts. But he simply shows him his hands. And then Thomas gives this affirmation. He says, my Lord and my God. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, it's really the most poignant, theologically accurate, beautiful affirmation of who Jesus truly is in that Gospel. And it's from his doubts that he makes this affirmation of truly who Jesus is. Now, let's apply this for one second, because here's why I think that's so significant for us to begin to have a culture that says belief can, or excuse me, doubt can be beneficial. Because it's likely 
one of your children or one of your friends or maybe you will go through a season questioning whether or not this is true. And we can do one of two things. We can either set up a culture that most of the church and the religious community has said, you're never allowed to do that. You are never allowed to question this. You are never allowed to think Jesus could not be real or Jesus could not be true. You are never allowed to look at another worldview. You are never allowed to go anywhere else. Or you can do what Jesus did. You can set up a culture that says, I will show you my hands. I will show you the evidence. But as I show you the evidence, there will never be a word of condemnation as you examine it. You see, because you've got to set up a culture within your church and within your family where doubt is not encouraged, but it's okay to doubt. It's okay to process this. Because often, listen, doubt is what can sink you into deeper truth. Descartes in his meditations said, actually, if you want to come to the greatest concrete beliefs in your life, you have to begin with skepticism. In fact, if you jump into something blindly, the ceiling of, of your knowledge of it is very low, what most scientists will say. But if you begin by questioning and looking into things, the ceiling is almost you know, unreachable for how deep and how wide you can go to knowing something. And so doubt, the nature of it, is both personal and social, which your children will probably go through. But the doubts that they can process can actually be beneficial to them and ground them into something that they don't just bring from your family, but it becomes personal for them to hold on to. Why? Because they immerse their story and their questions into the story. It can be so beneficial to them. So thirdly and lastly, how do we process, how do we sink through this? So if doubt is not just a bad thing, it can be beneficial to us, how do we actually begin to sink through these doubts? Well, let me give you four things Four things to do to work through doubts. You've got to reflect on your reasons. And I'm sorry for all these outline things I've got, but they're just the most helpful way for me to write this out. Reflect on your reasons. You have to experience with another, grow your understanding of God, and rest in unchanging truths. Um, reflect on your reasons. Look at Asaph. He says this, For I envied the arrogant. Here's what Asaph is so willing to do that we have to begin to do if you're going to process doubt or help someone process doubt. He's reflecting enough to realize he's not just having intellectual issues, that there are motives involved. See, you have to, you've got to begin to, to say that something is not just hard to believe. It's that you don't want to believe it. There are times where, you know, we may not say this out loud, but practically it's true for us. It's not that we can't believe we're called to forgive somebody. It's that we don't want to forgive somebody. And, and the, there's a motive behind that. Often it is what Asaph says, it's arrogance or it's envy or it's pride that those drive us to do that. But you'll never work through that until you can acknowledge and you can reflect on your reasons for doing these things. Because it is, there are practical reasons why something is hard for us to believe. Nobody said this better than Alice Huxley in his book, Ends and Means. He reflects better than most Christians will. Let me ask you if you can, if you can reflect this way. Look what he says. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, 
Consequently, consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to find no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern it in the way they find most advantageous to themselves. And Richard Dawkins says, it is, uh, it's a virtue in religion to not think. Well, it's a virtue, I would say, you know, the same thing in skepticism to not think. If you're not willing to look into your doubts or help people look into the reasons for their doubts, and do you realize there's not just, it's not just does God exist, it's why do you not want him to exist? And Huxley said we didn't want him to exist, and that was pretty easy to figure out for ourselves from the practical ways that we wanted to live our lives. And what helps Pascal when he reflects on that way is he begins to, or excuse me, what helps ASAP is he begins to look at this through what a lot of people, theologians, call Pascal's wager. He says, okay, I have motives for this world. But when I step back and I realize my motives for not believing in God, I had to look back on the feet that I was standing on and the world that I possibly wanted. And I had to look back on the world that I was choosing and the life that I wanted to live and look what I was standing on there. And look what he says in verse 18. He says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He's saying, here's the metaphor again about slippery ground and about being dizzy. No matter where you are in this world, no matter what you think and consider to be true, listen, you're standing on some hope. And here's what Asaph said. He said, I realized when I envied the arrogant and I looked out of the world and I looked out at my neighbors who did not believe and I saw their lives, they're standing on a ground that says, if I pursue this in life, I will be happy. If I pursue this kind of lifestyle, then I'll find peace. And no matter what you believe, you have to understand, whether it's in God or in this world, you're standing on a hope. And you're living your life on some sort of premise to bring you something that you long for in this world. And what Asaph realizes, he said, look, what the unbelievers are standing on, he said, I think is more precarious than what I'm called to stand on. That he really did. He took, he took the two options. There's either, is God real? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if that's true, then life is only found in him. Or, he said, well, there is no God. There is no world. Excuse me, there is no eternal world. Life is not found in him. Life is only found in the pleasures of this world. And he said, but when I looked at the ground that I stand on, stood on, I've even tasted that. I've even pursued that. I've even chased that. And it was more slippery than the fear and the doubts that I felt dealt with with God on the ground himself. And he, he was able to reflect enough and to think deeply enough and to say, look, the reasons that I pursue this, that I pursue faith, are at times curious. And sometimes they don't make sense. But the reasons to pursue a life without God are more precarious, are more undependable. And you have to be able to reflect on that deep enough if you ever want to work through doubt. You see, if you have somebody in your life who's struggling with doubt, 
you have to help them think through what could this world give you that you truly want. Because the practical thing that we can point to in our society right now is those people who have tasted what that person who's doubting wants will say it's not there. And we have endless cases of this. You have to reflect on the reasons of your doubt. Secondly, you have to experience, you have to work through doubt with somebody else. In verse 16, he says this, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Here's, he's not talking about, I went into a, a building and I went to think, and uh, in that, the stained glass windows and stuff made it all clear to me. He processed doubt in the worship of God with, with other people, in community with other people. I saw, I saw this on the college campus um, so clearly a couple years ago. There was a student who I had, his name was Kyle. And Kyle was raised by an atheist mom from a divorced family. And he came uh, to our group having never been in a church in his entire life. And so he and I began to have these existential philosophical conversations. He read some high intellectual Christian literature with me as we processed faith and we processed these questions. And about a year and a half later, he became, he professed faith and we baptized him in the local church. But his story when he gave a testimony was mostly this. He talked about how his friends listened to his questions, prayed with him, conversed with him over a year. And I began to realize this. I wrote down a, a list of students who I had uh, um, seen profess faith. Like they said, I did not believe this and when I left this ministry... I believed this. And it was a, a large number, but there was only one student I could find who came up to me after a sermon and said, you were talking, I heard this presentation of the gospel, and after you finished talking, now I believe. The rest of those stories were all kids with their friends in a small group, processing conversation, then praying for them, answering questions over a long time through community. Listen, if, you, if, you, if you're willing to acknowledge with me that doubts don't just arise intellectually, but they arise socially, they arise through our stories in life, then the only way to process them is through our story in life with other people. You have, to, you have to learn to sing, not just by yourself, but with other people. The worst thing you can do in your doubts is stay within yourself. You have to get into the church, even when it's hard to believe, and even when it doesn't make sense to you, you still go. You still converse. You still talk through it. Thirdly, you have to grow your understanding of God. See, doubts come in because there's a paradigm that we have of God that doesn't add up with life. This is what Aesop says. I looked at the world. It didn't make sense because I thought you're good. Life doesn't add up with who your character is. And so one of the questions is, is God at fault or are we at fault? And what Aesop helps us understand is truly what happens is that it, it, we don't have a proper understanding of God. And this is a, a, a common story of doubt. Sometimes people will get into college or post-life, and they will begin to realize, hey, life is not adding up with the God who I was taught about and who I was told Jesus is. And they will begin to think, people lie to me. And I want to I say to you, they didn't lie to you. 
They just gave you the proper understanding of God that you could handle and you could know at, at that time. Let me illustrate this. Sometimes, you know, kids will come to you and say, where do babies come from? And how do you answer that question? It depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a child, you say, they come from mommy's tummy. If you're talking to a junior high kid, you get a little bit more biological. If you're talking to a friend, you get very mature in that conversation. Nobody's lying. Nobody's withholding the truth. It's the appropriate question. It's the appropriate answer for the appropriate age. And sometimes, here's why, why doubts creep up. is because you have a mommy's tummy theology for the real life questions. And this is this was Asaph's problem. You have to grow your view of who God is. And you have to get beyond God just being this your token genie in the sky who will reward you for living a good life and realize he, God is so much more complicated than this. Life is so much more difficult for this. And if you want to process life as you get older and as it becomes more difficult, you need a more complicated God. Listen, which the scriptures give you. And Asaph was willing to admit this in verse 23. He says, For I was a brute beast. I was ignorant, yet you continually hold me. See, if we're going to believe in God as He is God, we have to have a more sophisticated understanding of who God is. And He's got to have a more, He's got to be more sophisticated than our understandings to be. And so we have to let Him be that. And you have to come to Him. And it's not blind faith. But Kierkegaard said we only understand when we look back. And your options are either do you want to look back and hope life keeps working out for you? Or do you want to understand it's a good God who processes it together? But you have to get a more complicated view and beyond a mommy's tummy God. Lastly, you've got to rest in truths. Um, there's, I don't have time to do both of these, but I'll do one of them. He says in verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look, you have to get out of your reasons that there are motives for doubts You've got to process this with other people. Thirdly, you've got to grow your understanding that God is more complicated than our simple things. And he's got to be more complicated for our complicated life. But there are truths that you've got to rest in as you process doubt, as you help other people process doubt. And he says this, God is the strength of my heart. This word for strength, I love that he uses this, is the Hebrew word sir. And almost every other use in the Old Testament is the word translated, translated the word rock and often boulder. And what it means is this, is that in order for you to process doubt, God has got to be the rock of your life. That he's got to be more dependable, more sure, more sturdy than all your life circumstances, than all your emotions. We are such an emotionally driven world. We are such emotionally driven people that we have got to have a God who is more sturdy and more stable than our emotions and then our life experiences, which are week to week like this. If you let your life circumstances and your emotions drive your life like this, then you will always, always be living in belief, doubt, belief, doubt, belief, doubt, and unsure in your doubt whether your beliefs were ever true. And often, your emotions of what you think are the least trustworthy things in your life. I'm not trying to pick on her, but my wife says to me all the time, she says, I look terrible. And I say, no, you don't. 
I'm attracted to you. You're a gorgeous, beautiful woman. And everyone around her can say that. But her. And we do this so often in life that really your opinion and your emotions are the least trustworthy thing in your life. And what Asaph realized is if I'm going to process doubt, I have to get outside of myself and there's got to be something I trust that's more than my heart and emotions. And God is the boulder in my life that is unmoving, unchanging. Un, un, he never, ever changes his opinion of you. And here's the beauty of this. Even in your doubts, God does not change his view of you. He says, I was a brute beast. I kicked back. I did not like it. I doubted you so much. He says, you were still gracious and forgiving. You were still loving to me in those moments. You were still, your hand was still with me. Why was his hand still with him? Well, Asaph didn't know, but we can know. God's hand was still with you in your doubts, in your rejection of him, because on the cross, he took it away from Jesus and actually punched back to the man who never doubted, who said, on the cross, I still believe. Even if it doesn't make sense, your will be done. Which means you can know when you doubt, when your children doubt, when your friends doubt, God's grace and His love is still open with open arms. And like, like Jesus to Thomas, He extends His hands and says, touch them. I'll show you the evidence. And my hands and my arms are always open in grace for you to work through this with other people. Get deep with your thoughts and know I'm much more complicated and He is the rock that will never, ever, ever change. Let me pray for us. Lord, doubt is so complicated and it's so hard. And this psalm, um, Lord, helps us not think of this as a, a faulty character trait. Uh, that it is not something that we should be ashamed of, not something that we should be embarrassed of. Uh, but it is uh, life to process whether or not you're good, whether or not you're real, whether or not you're true. Help us, Lord, to believe. Help us to have friends uh, who are safe enough to help us work through these things. Help us work with our children and when they doubt and question, let us be like Jesus who showed his scars with evidence but with such tenderness. In his name we pray. Amen.